Verse 11, just read to us, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Rosemary and I treated ourselves to one of our uh, rare visits to a very nice Chinese restaurant in the Broadway at Hayward's Heath. Uh, we were early, and so the first there. And whilst we waited for our first course, the waitress spotted my cross and said, you Catholic? <laughs> no, I said, reformed. <laughs> and a completely blank expression came across her face. Well, I tried to explain. She said, like big church, um, motioning towards St. Wilfrid's on the hill above South Road. Eventually, before she dashed off to attend to her duties, she said to me, I come from Malaysia. There we only have two churches, Catholic and Christian. I am Catholic. <laughs> well, I guess that was a bit of an oversimplification for the Malaysia I know. Uh, but I sympathised with her confusion. Outside this building is a notice saying United Reformed Church. Now, some of you would have been brought up Congregationalists, some Presbyterians, some Churches of Christ, the, the constituent bodies which came together some 40 years ago to constitute this new United Reformed Church. Some of the younger ones amongst us uh, will have known nothing but the United Reformed Church. But I guess there are just as many who have drifted in from other traditions. Baptist, Methodist, Anglican, Salvation Army, even maybe one or two who have started life as Roman Catholics. And if I asked you what the United Reformed Church stands for, what is its essential identity, what would you say? Well, we are a free church. We are biblically based and evangelical without being fundamentalist. We are very open, a broad church. We are governed not by bishops or hierarchies, but by democratic councils and church meetings comprising both ministers and lay people. The URC scheme of union, which is the nearest, I guess, we have to a constitution, says the church is apostolic because Christ continues to entrust it with the gospel. And the commission, first given to the apostles, to proclaim the gospel to all people. But quite frankly, many would now find it difficult to define what is distinctive about us, what justifies us continuing a separate entity at a time when all the mainline churches are experiencing a somewhat dramatic 
decline in membership and influence, and theological subtleties have become increasingly blurred. Now, it was a very different environment into which the URC was born in 1972. Churches were still experiencing then some of that uh, post-war resurgence. The big issue for the churches at that time was the business of church unity. The ecumenical movement, as it was called, emanated from the, the great World Mission Conference, which was held in Edinburgh in 1910, when church leaders from all over the world concluded that divided witness was a major impediment to the call to win the world for Christ. And the key, the key text, of course, in all this was John 17, 21. May they all be one that the world may believe. The World Council of Churches was inaugurated in 1948, and many national and more local councils came into existence. Organic unity, the structural union of churches, was the aim. In my student days, I was for a time, the secretary of the Greater London Christian Youth Council, a body which came together to try and encourage young people to understand each other better and to work together for Christ. But ecumenism was hard going. The Roman Catholics stood aloof. Free church people could only take communion in an Anglican church with the specific permission of the bishop. Attempts to bring the Church of England and the Methodist churches together failed dismally. And it was against that background that our denomination came into being in 1972 with a momentous service in Westminster Abbey, at which Cardinal John Heenan, Archbishop Michael Ramsey, and Free Church moderator, Yvonne Morgan, greeted us, and each of them pledged, I give thanks for this union and share your resolve to seek that wider unity, which is Christ's will. Now, the, this new URC was the first fruit of this new move towards that organic unity, which seemed to be the ideal, the aim for the established churches. And much was said at that time about our being a sort of catalyst. It was widely anticipated that we wouldn't be around for very long, because we would surely, uh, the momentum would grow and we would join up with others. As a testimonial to that principle, the URC made a firm commitment that it would only found and set up new congregations ecumenically as union churches in partnership with another denomination. And the higher proportion of our churches ever since has been involved in local ecumenical projects and covenants than any other denomination. In national and local contexts, 
It has often been our church which has supplied leadership and initiative in cooperative ventures far beyond our size and weight. And so church unity, this ecumenical movement was to be the activator, the trigger for the renewal of the Christian church in this country. But it was not to be. A couple of years ago, I was interviewed by a retired URC minister who was researching this whole, this whole matter. Martin Camru's name uh, spent a lot of time and energy exploring the history of the URC and the church unity movement and trying to understand and communicate what has gone wrong. I waded through his book, Ecumenism in Retreat, How the URC Failed to Break the Mold. For most of it, I became more and more depressed as I read. <laughs> With meticulous clarity, he tabulated the way in which the great excitement, the anticipation faded as the decline of the mainline denominations continued. And every attempt to bring Christians together and even into covenant relationships seemed dismally to collapse. He even concludes that the efforts to achieve this organic union may actually have impeded mission itself. He points to the enormous amount of time and energy we've had to devote to, to church structures and bureaucracy to keep the show on the road, rather than devoting it to the proclamation of the gospel and the service of the kingdom. Well, all this made me reflect on my own life and ministry. A Presbyterian son of congregational parents, I attended a very high church Anglican prep school. I well remember the little group of us teenagers when we started work, commuting to London on the tube, having animated discussions with an Anglican friend, and eventually persuading his rather spiky vicar to let us hold a joint youth service. At Westminster College in Cambridge, we were drilled in this reformed faith. But outside in Cambridge on a Sunday, uh, we broadened our spiritual horizons from highest to lowest. And then in the local churches of which I was minister, we always strove to work as closely as we possibly could with the other churches round about. 1972, I was the URC's first youth secretary. And we, the youth secretaries of different churches, uh, worked very, very closely together. For a spell, I, I chaired the British Council of Churches Youth Unit, and I was on the executive of the ecumenical uh, youth council in Europe. And then when I became a synod moderator, 
through the 1980s, I seemed to spend a growing amount of time at various church leaders' meetings and inter-church gatherings. Naturally, as you know, my final appointment was in Geneva, uh, working for the World Council of Churches. And as I read Martin Camru's book, I asked myself, was all this in vain? Has a major thrust of my whole ministry been mistaken, fruitless? Well, it, frankly, it is a, a, a chastening thought. But wait a minute. What we saw as the practical aim organic church unity may have been mistaken. But the underlying thrust of the ecumenical movement calling certainly it was not um, was not mistaken. And that is in Jesus' prayer may they all be one that the world may believe. So, three positive points, just to cheer you up a bit, you know, after all that. Gosh, I see you getting lower and lower in your seat. First, just look at how we have advanced. For the most part, we are now friends. Anglicans and the free evangelicals around the corner. Baptists and Methodists down in Hayward's Heath. We share in churches together, including Roman Catholics and some of the ethnic minority churches. Even some of the more um, extreme evangelical and charismatic churches now cooperate in, in community projects. We may not have come together structurally but the ecclesiastical climate has warmed immeasurably since I began my ministry in 1959. We are welcome when we go to communion at All Saints up the road now. Thanks be to God. But second, I think of the things that used to, to separate us and indeed which caused wars and persecution not so very long ago have faded somewhat and are certainly not as divisive as they used to be. Christians, I think, have become more tolerant, understanding of each other. No longer do we demand that others should do it my way. There is much more sense of acceptance that the Lord hasn't made us all the same. Unity doesn't demand dull uniformity. While some will stand for hours to hear the rich resonance of the Roman, of the Russian Orthodox mass, others will sway and wave to the sound of electric guitars. Some will want to christen a new arrival uh, around the font in a family gathering 
uh, on a Sunday, quiet Sunday afternoon. Others will pack round a baptistry to watch new believers being immersed, to witness to their faith. Are there really people who believe that the Jesus we follow is in the slightest bit interested in the quantity of water or the timing of baptism, rather than what is actually going on in people's hearts. Thirdly, there are, of course, differences between Christians. But they depend much more now on different skills, different experiences, different cultures the believers rather than theological specifications. Some are called, trained, equipped to be evangelists, to be preachers of the word. Others are much more comfortable with deeds rather than words, with caring for those in need, demonstrating Christ's love rather than proclaiming it orally. God has blessed his people, all of us here, with a great variety of gifts which are complementary and not, not in competition, in conflict. Paul reminds us that we are altogether the body of Christ, but some are limbs. Others, organs. We each have a distinctive place, our role to play. And so, despite Martin Camus' rather uh, challenging and perhaps rather depressing description of the plight of the URC and indeed other churches today, as he sees it, I continue to trot round Sunday by Sunday, preaching the word uh, to a wide variety of the faithful. Yes, there is a lack in many places of the younger age groups and sometimes expressions of concern about who is going to carry the torch when we are gone. But you know, there's still a mighty band of believers. And I sense that we are more and more willing to love one another and work together than ever before in Christendom. What is more, I don't think we really get so bogged down with the details. We are more ready to see a broader gospel we share with our fellow Christians. And I do believe that we are beginning to recognize in each other and in our fellow Christians complementary gifts, experiences, abilities. We can share in the proclamation of the gospel and the service of the kingdom. So remember, as Paul reminded the Ephesians, he made known to us the mystery of his will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under one head, Jesus Christ. Perhaps we have been looking for the wrong sort 
of unity. Let's rejoice in and go forward in the overwhelming unity we do have as limbs and organs in that one body of which the head is Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.